Hi, this is Elliot Fishman, and welcome to part two of incidental adrenalomas. How do we manage them? And in the last talk, we went through some basic principles. I then addressed some issues with the kidneys and the adrenals. And now let's look at one of the most important areas, the pancreas. We published articles that say up to 5% of patients have incidental pancreatic cysts. And most of these are not important, but others can be considered pre-malignant. It's amazing how often we see tiny pancreatic cysts. People reported with MR up to 20%. We reported under 3% on 16-slice CT. But the issue, of course, is the better the scanner, the more tiny lesions you will see. And some people can see lesions everywhere. But if you go by MR, which picks up tiny cysts, 20%, that's going to be impressive. And what are you going to do with them? Well, most of the cysts we pick up look like this. They're side branch IPMNs. They're about a centimeter in size. And truthfully, in a patient with no family history of pancreatic cancer, these cystic lesions are probably not of any significance. But then they start getting larger, and they're two centimeters here. Or in this case, there's a three, two and a half centimeter one in the head, and there's a larger one in the body. What do you do with this? And the fact they're multiple, do you need to follow them more closely? One of one becomes malignant and the others aren't. And you can see the size. What do you do? And we look carefully at cystic lesions and we see thick inceptations, nodularity, or enhancement. We'll do tissue sampling. And so this one has a tiny septation, so you need to watch it more closely. But how do you manage these patients on a day-to-day -day basis? Do you follow up everybody? You're going to follow up 5 plus percent of patients forever? Do you need to follow them forever or is it two years? Is it like a lung nodule? What is it? Well, IPMNs, some facts. Usually an older population, the key is if the pancreatic duct alone is involved and dilated, then it's a main duct, IPMN. If it's a side branch off the duct, then it's a side branch. And if you have both, then it's considered a mixed type. With main duct dilatation of over 0.7 millimeters, you have to evaluate over a centimeter is associated with a high chance of malignancy. And main pancreatic duct IPMNs are more commonly malignant than side branches. Some of the findings that predict malignancy would be size over 3 cm, continued growth over 2 millimeters a year, mural nodules, particularly enhancing mural nodules, septations, particularly enhancing septations, and clinical symptoms. If you have an incidental cystic lesion with an abdominal pain, you're going to worry about it and probably operate. Now the question is, what do you do? So the ACR had recommendations. Surgery should be considered for patients with cysts larger than 3 cm. Serous cystadenomas operate over 4 cm. Patients with simple cysts under 3 cm can be followed. Uh, cysts smaller than 1 cm cannot be characterized, but can be followed up less frequently than larger cysts. Aspiration is strongly advised to exclude pseudocysts before any surgery is performed on an incidental cyst. And patients must remain asymptomatic during the follow-up period. If not, they're going to get surgery. Now, that was 2010, but those recommendations were kind of very soft. And every institution, be it Hopkins or Mass General, so here's Mass General, Annual imaging surveillance is sufficient for benign serous cystadenomas under 4 cm and for asymptomatic lesions. Asymptomatic thin-walled cystic lesions under 3 cm or side branch IPMNs 
should be followed with CT or MR at six and 12 month intervals after detection. But then of course, how long do you follow them? No one ever says that. Cystic lesions with more complex features or growth rates, more than a CM a year should be followed more closely. Symptomatic cystic lesions, neoplasms with high potential, with high malignant potential and lesions over three CM should probably end up getting surgery. EOS can be used preoperatively to assess risk of malignancy in indeterminate lesions. Now, one of the things in terms of recommendations was to simply f stop following patients they haven't changed for a couple years. This article by Brooke talks about the fact 27% of patients, the small asymptomatic cysts grew follow-up, grew during follow-up imaging, but it may have taken more than three years. And so timing, you can't say follow for one year. You can't say follow for two years. You can't say follow for three years. And in fact, the current recommendation for follow-up of small pancreatic cysts may need to be revised because initially they said a couple year follow-up and stop. And we know that's not true. So what do you need to do? And that has become one of the real issues. Radiologists may favor providing follow-up recommendations that more closely reflect the management preferred by ordering providers than by outside organizations. And again, we'd like to have some consistency, but as I said, every institution seemed to do it differently. Now, the ACR tried with white paper, Alec Megabone, no one knows more than Alec, to try to come up with some standards. They did a great job, but they also said that we don't really have a great answer. They put things into categories under 1.5, 1.5 to 2.5, with or without communication to the main pancreatic duct, over 2.5, and what about an 80-year-old? They recommended up to 10-year follow-up. That's impressive. Nothing is a 10-year follow-up or a nine-year. There's nothing that's nine years. I think what they did that is to say, hey, listen, let's put nine years. Before we reach nine years, we're going to revise this criteria anyway, so let's not worry about it. But you could see that it's really unclear. And since you're saying it's a field defect, and since you're saying it's a potential for developing malignancy, there really is no time when you can just say enough is enough. They came up with some charts, and I'll just show you them. You could read them on your own, and it's worthwhile reading. Incidental pancreatic cyst in a patient over 80. Now again, patients over 80 can live to 100, but you want to not create more problems for them. And so you can see 1.5 or less, less than 65, re-image yearly for five, stable over five, then re-image twice over two. That's how you get nine years and a stable nine years. There's not a lot of science behind that, but that's something you could at least say. And you can see from these charts, there are a million different charts. And if lesions get larger, going from 1.4 to 1.6, then your chart changes. So it's very important to understand what you should offer, but I still recommend you deal with your referring physicians, your surgical group, your uh, GI group, and everybody should come to the same conclusion. And it's not going to be perfect, but we're living in imperfect times. And Megabo makes the good point. The natural history of incidental pancreatic cysts remains uncertain, and our recommendations cannot be simple or entirely definitive. Enough said. 
Now, in their algorithm, there were five principles. I think you should read them. All incidental cysts should be presumed mucinous unless it has features of an alternative diagnosis. And again, nine to 10 year follow-up they speak about. Cyst size directs follow-up. And again, they made them things into three categories. Under 1.5, 1.5 to 2.5, and over 2.5. Remember, at one point, we had the Sendai criteria that said three CM or better, you have to operate on every patient. And again, the flow charts exist, but you may change flow charts over time. Development of worrisome features, nodularity, enhancement, septations should lead to prompt EUS and surgical consideration. So again, changes in nodularity, development of nodularity, enhancement, enlargement are all going to be features. And of course, again, what you need to be careful about and the biggest challenges on initial presentation, you don't know if it's growing or it's slowly growing or quickly growing. So you need to be very careful in looking at those patients and trying to triage their management. So in terms of Hopkins, what we do, we do imaging and follow-up with CT or MR at three to six months. We use EUS initially and surgery, typical reasons, main duct IPMN, mucinous cystic neoplasm, or imaging growth over five millimeters or three to five in a year. Now we have a multidisciplinary conference and we do find that works well. We're all on the same boat. We discuss as a group the difficult cases. We have an algorithm. And you can see our recommendations differ. Sometimes we're more aggressive, sometimes we're less aggressive than the referring site where patient, patients have come from. And you can see just some of the impact of the conference. But again, one of the good things about having a conference is you're consistent and you're learning and you're planning. And we alter the management in up to 30% of cases. Now, obviously, you can ask, are we altering in a good way? And I think the answer is yes. And from our article, management was increased in 52 patients, including 22 patients who were recommended surgery. Management was decreased in 16 patients, including 10 who had their recommendation changed from surgery to surveillance. So you can see when you have a bunch of expert people, pathology, radiology, surgery, endoscopy, medicine, pathology, get everybody together, you can do a lot of really good things. But you can see it's, not it's really challenging, and often we will argue what needs to be done for the patient. Now, of course, age and what the patient prefers to do will become very important. But you can see that it's not just saying we're getting more surgery, maybe we're getting more surveillance, but we are changing what we do. Now, in terms of incidental findings in the pancreas, we usually focus on pancreatic cysts, because that's very common, but we should also talk a little bit about neuroendocrine tumors. We used to say 30% of neuroendocrine tumors were detectable on CT. Now it's 95%. And now the issue is we pick up incidental lesions, small vascular lesions. And the question is, what do you do? Do you need to go in and resect every tiny incidentaloma of that's vascular? Are these patients going to develop malignancy long-term? That's an interesting question. Now, the reason we're picking up so many is because we're scanning quickly. We're doing a lot of arterial phase imaging. And just to show you, here's a nice example of a neuroendocrine tumor, incidental head of pancreas, three centimeters. But only because you were able to scan quickly did you see that lesion. The 
incidental detection of pancreatic neuroendocrine tumors has increased significantly over the last decade. And again, this management question is indeed kind of tricky. How do we manage patients? Uh, article by Herrera, non-MEN-related, non-functioning asymptomatic neuroendocrine tumors under 2 CMA, 2 centimeters, with a KI67 index under 2%, have a low risk of METs and can be managed conservatively. Now, we're actually using CT with radiomics to try to determine which are the worrisome neuroendocrine tumors and which are the ones that just can be followed routinely. Okay, so we are looking at that and a lot of work is going on, but you can see the challenge. And as scanners get better, incidental findings may increase just because we scan faster and we see things that we commonly missed before. So it's really a double-edged sword. Now, in terms of incidental findings, every once in a while you see a lesion by the tail of the pancreas. Is it a splenule or is it a tumor coming off the pancreas? Usually I can make the diagnosis easily. Sometimes it's not so easy. There's an algorithm, this article by Ba spoke about an algorithm, what to do. Now, the key thing, of course, is usually it's easy to recognize. Intrapancreatic accessory spleen, solid heterogeneous enhancing masses, 1 to 3 cm, near tail of pancreas, doesn't enhance as much as a typical neuroendocrine tumor, but more importantly, it enhances identical to the spleen on both arterial and venous phase imaging. But it can be a challenge, and so sometimes you're just not certain, and you swear it looks like a tumor, but you're not sure. There are other things you can do. You don't want to do a biopsy, but in this algorithm, we talk about using nuclear studies, we talk about using MR, and just being very careful on the CT. But it's something you need to worry about. It's an incidental finding. Again, most of the time you can tell for sure this is a uh, accessory spleen, but sometimes it's really difficult. Now, as long as I mention the spleen, let me tell you a little bit more about the spleen. The truth is there are many incidental findings in the spleen, and nearly all of them are going to be benign. And when you look at the list of splenic lesions, obviously you have benign and you have malignant. When you have malignant, usually it's multi-organ involvement or there's clinical symptoms. When it's incidental, it's typically going to be benign. And we see a range of tumors. This article by Tiphavung made that point. Primary sarcomas are rare, okay? Malignancies, patients have symptoms, lymphoma, metastasis. You see other processes. On the other hand, congenital cysts, water density, well-defined, asymptomatic, though sometimes they're large enough. Hemangiomas is another incidental finding. Could look identical to hemangiomas in the liver. Most of the time they're not. They're low-density lesions, maybe with a little enhancement. They don't have peripheral puddling and central filling in. Hematomas, I can recognize because they come exophytic. Hematomas can be associated with syndromes. Most of them are going to be incidental. That works out very nice. So when you do a reality check, most splenic lesions are benign, like adrenal. Most splenic lesions are followed conservatively. We rarely do biopsies. Scan techniques are limited. And there is no new technique, though I think cinematic may help. Dual energy has not been that helpful. So things we think about, what's the patient's history? 
Are you febrile? Then I think about an abscess. Incidental finding, it's going to be benign. Have lots of nodes, I think lymphoma. What are lab studies? A lesion solitarium, multiple other, other organs involved. What's the clinical history? Great article by Stewart to evaluate whether splenic masses incidentally detected needed to be evaluated further. Conclusion, an incidental splenic mass, the likelihood of malignancy is under 1%, therefore follow-up may not be indicated. Seward, follow-up of splenic mass is instantly detected at CT in patients with no evidence of previous or newly diagnosed malignancy and no systematic symptoms or localized pain does not appear to be indicated. And their article is a very good one. When you have symptoms, fever, then you think malignancy, you also can think an abscess. But at the end of the day, and I'll read the conclusion. In conclusion, in patients with an incidental splenic mass identified in imaging and with the absence of a history of malignancy, weight loss or pain in the left upper quadrant or epigastrium, such masses are highly likely to be benign regardless of their appearance. Additional imaging or follow-up is not warranted, even if the mass does not show the appearance of a simple cyst. Further workup is only needed if the splenic mass is seen in conjunction with other findings worrisome for malignancy. Bottom line, leave well enough alone. Now, one last thing I'll mention in the spleen before we take a break. Accessory spleens are up to 16% of patients. Usually under 2CM, usually near the hilum of the spleen, they do enhance identical to the spleen. Occasionally, they sit by the tail of pancreas and can simulate a pancreatic neuroendocrine tumor. Sometimes you get fooled by splenic artery aneurysms. Accessory spleens enhance like normal splenic tissue on arterial and venous phase imaging. So here we see a lesion by the tail of the pancreas. Is that a tumor? Well, it's enhancing identical to the spleen early and late phase imaging. And so when you look at it, you recognize that you're dealing with a process that's going to be the spleen. Another example here. So it's a very, very important thing. And this article by Bob, incidental pancreatic lesions like intrapancreatic accessory spleen remain a diagnostic challenge. Employing a diagnostic algorithm as proposed may aid in the distinction of malignant and premalignant pathology and prevent unwarranted pancreatic resections. And that's a good point. But again, if you're careful, usually you don't run into the problem. And Bob made, up the, made the point that 10 of 303 patients who underwent a distal pancreatectomy had an intrapancreatic accessory spleen. It's not a large number, but it's large enough that you need to be very, very careful. The article by Ba goes through the point that you will see splenic buds up to 20% of cases, but other patients have it within the pancreatic tail where it is going to be a diagnostic dilemma. I do like the topic of intrapancreatic accessory spleens because it is a perplexing problem. We've seen many patients referred in for a distal pancreatectomy. Then we look carefully, we say, aha, it's not. The surgeons have the patient here already. The knives are being sharpened. Well, you may need not sharpen the knife. You may need to do other studies to convince you that it really is spleen and not a neuroendocrine tumor. The heterogeneous enhancement of on arterial phase is secondary to the difference in rate of flow between the red pulp and the white pulp. So the changes of perfusion in the spleen may also be seen in the accessory spleen. Octreotide scans are up to 
sensitive at detecting their endocrine tumors, and occasionally they can be helpful if you're uncertain, but we have had, and so this article, false positive. So it's not always going to be perfect. So again, it's a challenge. High suspicion and then care. So in this case, you see a nice lesion by the tail of the pancreas. Could this be a neuroendocrine tumor? Usually it's not bright enough, but there it is. It looks identical to the spleen. On the early and late phase imaging, it's identical to the spleen. That's going to be a uh, splenule. It's a leave-alone lesion. Okay. Now, when we talk about other things in the spleen, we talk about other processes. We talk about cysts. We talk about homangiomas. We talk about hematomas. Yes, we have splenic abscesses. Yes, we have splenic tumor. But at the end of the day, the most common splenic lesion we are going to see is going to be a benign lesion. So I think one of the challenges with the spleen is how to know when to say when. When do you need to follow patients up? When do you not need to do that? So with that, let me take a break right here, and let's come back and start looking at some of the common benign splenic tumors and looking at how we differentiate them and some key findings in terms of splenic masses and their management. I'll see you in five. If you liked what you heard here today, please make sure to hit that subscribe button and visit our website, ctss.com, for lectures, quizzes, pearls, and more. Also, be sure to check out our apps that are available for free on the Apple Store. All links are in the description box below.